We're going to be looking at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20, so if you want to turn in your Bibles there, I'll give you a second to get there, but I'm just going to pray real quick as you're, as you're turning. So Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to open your word together, Lord, and uh, just praying, God, that you would speak to all of our hearts this evening. Um, Lord, we just want to know you more. We want to see you and the work that you're doing, Lord, and uh, we just thank you, God, that you are so good to us, that you've given us your word, and we just pray, God, that you would bless it now as we, as we look through it. In Jesus' name, name I pray, amen. So, all right, well, we, uh, so if you're making your way to 1 Samuel chapter 20, we've been studying through the life of David, and naturally that's led us to have a little bit of a contrast between the life of Saul and um, one life is of David's is a demonstration of a life that's based on the guidance of the Lord, you know, seeking after living by the Spirit, trusting in the plans that he has, living for his glory and not his own glory. That's David's life. And then we've got Saul's life, which is based on fulfilling the desires of the flesh in a lot of ways. We see that. Building his own kingdom, uh, self-promotion tends to be what we see in his life. And this is a life that's led by the wisdom of the world. And we know that this is the wisdom of the world because we have it. It's clearly shown to us in James. If you look at James 3, it tells us, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So we've got envy, self-seeking, confusion. These are the things that we see in the life of Saul. And we know a couple chapters back that things really started going south for Saul in his heart. When David was coming back from the battle and uh, the people started chanting and saying, hey, Saul's killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. And that's when we saw this jealousy just raise up inside of Saul and um, Tim's brought it to light a couple times for us that in the Psalms it talks about jealousy and bitterness rot the bones. And if you've ever been jealous, if you've ever had that issue in your life or something going on and you see somebody and that jealousy is just inside you and it eats at you, it really does, it rots your bones. And so last week we saw David, he was on the run, his life was in danger in chapter 19. He's running from Saul. Saul's out to kill him. He even says it right at the beginning of chapter 19, we're going to kill David. And uh, he, so David runs off to the school of the prophets in Ramah to Samuel the prophet. So he runs out there. Saul ends up sending three different groups of soldiers out to kill David. And when they arrive there, the, uh, the spirit gets a hold of them. They start worshiping, prophesying, praising God. So Saul, in his frustration, he runs out there, goes after him himself. He says he's going to take care of this. He's going to kill David. Gets out there, and he's overwhelmed by the Spirit. Starts prophesying, and he goes, uh, strips off all of his clothes, and it's just like this humble moment. He becomes just like everyone else. Strips off that. God was not going to allow something to happen to his anointed, and God just takes over the situation. And so at that point... David gets out. And I think that's, a, um, that's an important lesson for us. You know, if God's calling you to something, if he's called you out into something, he's going to protect you. Things may come against you, but I believe that God is going to see you through it if he's called you to it. So we can really trust the Lord, trust God. He has our days numbered, and nothing's going to take you out before your days are accomplished. So we can trust the Lord. So we're going to pick up 1 Samuel chapter 20. Um, 
David is in Ramah, but you're going to see he's beginning to flee from there. So David fled, verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So David flees this place where God had done a mighty work um, to speak to Jonathan. And if remember that Jonathan is Saul's son. And, you know, he's not only Saul's son, he's... Uh, He's David's best friend and his closest friend. And I, a lot of times I think, well, so if you look at this passage and I look at David's life and I say, well, did he do what God wanted him to do here? Was this, should he have left? A lot of people say he shouldn't have left up where God was doing a work in Ramah. But, you know, I think he sought the Lord. He went to Samuel and then he sought his close friend. He came to talk to him and find out exactly what's going on here. And God uses those in our lives. We pray, we seek after him, and God uses the people in our lives many times if they're seeking after the Lord as well. God will use them in our lives to speak into our life. And I think that's what Jonathan's going to do here, this trusted friend. So he's heir to the throne, but David is actually going to get the throne. But he believes, David believes if anybody's going to be able to help him, it's going to be Jonathan. Um, so I think what, you know, when I look at this and I think, well, why did David leave? I think he probably is fulfilling what we, we see in Romans that, you know, we're called to, if at all possible, you know, as much as depends on us, live peaceably with all men. And I think that's what David wants. He just wants to live peaceably with Saul. David wants to know what's going on. David is confused. And so um, he's doing everything the king wants him to do, and he wants to kill me. I think David would be saying, am I missing something here? What exactly is going on? So that's a legitimate question I think everyone in this room would be asking. Why is this happening? Why was this person trying to kill me? I've done nothing to them. Verse 2, so, so Jonathan said to him, by no means you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. So Jonathan's convinced this is not what's, what David's misread the situation. Not only that, he believes that his relationship with his dad is so good. He knows his dad so well that there's no way that he wouldn't be in the know as to what's going on here. But if you turn one page back, just, just turn back to the beginning of 1 Samuel 19, and you'll see all the things that go on there. So if you, if you turn back, you can kind of like scan along just as I'm talking. But Jonathan intervenes. Saul says, hey, I'm going to kill David. And Jonathan intervenes. He steps in and says, remember what David's done. Remember all the good that David has done to you. Remember you rejoiced with David when we killed Goliath. Um, don't sin against innocent blood. That's important. David is innocent. There's no reason for this attitude is basically what he's telling his dad. And then look in 1 Samuel 19.6. He says, so Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Okay, so now we have, so no way is Saul coming for you is what Jonathan's thinking. He just swore to me, told me that's not going to happen. You've misread it. You know, I don't think he wants to give up hope on his dad. So let's go to verse three. Then David took an oath. And what's interesting is that took an oath. David swore right here as well. It's the same word that we see in, uh, in um, Saul's swearing, hey, I'm not going to kill him. David's, David's doing the same thing. But he says, he took an oath. And he says, and said, your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. 
You know, I, I think David has a keen sense of the type of man Saul is, right? He's, Saul may be acting crazy, but he's very aware of who's got relationships, what's going on around him. He knew the relationship between and the bond between David and Jonathan. And, and Saul, you know, he loves his son. I think there's aspects here. He loves his son. He, wants, he wanted him to have the kingdom. And in, in some kind of sixth sense, I believe that, you know, he just wants to keep Jonathan out of the mix because uh, Jonathan, he doesn't want to grieve Jonathan in this, which is kind of strange. But, you know, if you look at it, Jonathan was a person that brought sin to light in, in Saul's life. And people who don't walk by the Spirit, people who are walking by the flesh, they really don't want to have their sin brought to light. And that was one of the issues that, that Saul had. He didn't want his sin to be brought to light because when it did, then he had to change his actions. So people who walk by the flesh don't want to be confronted. So that, you know, I, I think, am I a person who likes to have my sin confronted in my life? You know, are you, are you that person? How do you react when people confront you, confront you about sin? I think you should have somebody in your life who is willing to talk to you. If you want to walk in the spirit, you should have a person in your life that will, that will do that. I think it's one of the beauties of being married. That person knows you intimately and they will bring to light the sin in your life. I think every married man in here knows that. But anyway, um, <clears throat> but how do you respond to that? How do I react to my wife when she tells me, hey, goofball, you're, you know, this is completely wrong. That's an attitude that we should have as um, that we should be, if we want to walk in the spirit, we want to know those things and we want to repent of those things in our life. So this is a desperate time for David. David believed that there was one step between him and death and there's no light matter. His life was in the balance. This is something that was going on. David's circumstances led to a change in his thinking, right? And that can be a bad thing if your circumstances, if your circumstances change the way you think about God or it's change something about who God is, then your circumstances changing the way you think is a bad thing. But there's a, it's also a good thing in some ways. David's now in desperation mode. And, and I think for us that God many times wants us to live in desperation mode, that we're, we're like have this perspective that we are all, everyone in this room, is one step away from death. You know, we never know what's going to happen, what's right around the corner. Um, and if that's the case, Psalm 90 tells us to teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Not so I can get more likes on Facebook or get more money or be more popular, but we're to, we're to seek after wisdom. James tells us that life is a vapor. You know, we hear these things, but do we apply them to our lives? And there's all kinds of passages that speak to that mindset, having that. Ephesians 5 tells us that we should be people who redeem the time that we have. So don't get caught up living life without having the perspective of e an eternal future that's before us. Um, when you walk in the Spirit, you become a person who has an eternal mindset. That's one of the things that we need to have. And 1 Corinthians 4.2 tells us, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. So we redeem the time in our lives by being faithful stewards to the one who's given us life and breath and all that we have. That's one of the things we should do. No moment should be lived unintentionally. We should, we should live with intention. Um, I find it interesting if you were on the run and somebody was throwing spears at you, which we've seen in David's life, you become very much making every moment count. That really starts thinking into your head. I may be killed at any moment. What should I be doing now? And yet you and I, if we've studied God's word, we know that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So 
do we live with that perspective? You know, there's going to be spears, there's going to be things coming at us. Not always things that we say, oh, that's very clear, God's taking me, you know, Satan's trying to take me personally out. But our culture really speaks garbage into our lives. Are we allowing the things that we see on TV or the conversations that we have to do something in our lives that are going to change us, that are going to warp us just a little bit to get us off track? And he's seeking to devour us, to change the way we think about who God is. And our culture is constantly doing that kind of thing. So if he can do something, what he wants to do is tear down our faith. If, we can, if our faith can get wrecked, then, then he's got us on the sidelines. We won't be serving the Lord. So what kind of things is he throwing at your life? Just think about that. If there's something that's making you doubt the promises of God in your life, it's probably something that's being thrown at you. I mean, this is the same tricks that he's used going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Think about God isn't good. He wants you to have this. Our whole culture says, you deserve this, you deserve that. And God says, I have plans for you that may not align with that. You may be on the run like David. You'd have no idea. So we need to remain close to the one who can protect and keep us in perfect peace. And then you end up living by Isaiah 26.3, which says you will keep him. God will keep the one in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him because he trusts in you. So our minds will be, if we're stayed on the Lord, we're going to be in perfect peace. It's amazing. So Jonathan, verse 4. So Jonathan said to David, whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. Now, Jonathan trusts his friend, trusts his judgment, and is willing to do what needs to be done. And I think this type of relationship came from a person who has had, um, they've been on the battlefield together. They've grown, they've bonded, they've knitted each other together. Um, and that has led to this point where he could say, I'll do anything you want me to do. He doesn't even know what David's going to ask him to do. And he says, I'm going to do this. I'll do anything you tell me to do. Because he knows the character of David. You know, I don't believe that David, I don't think Jonathan believed that David was going to say, well, could you go kill your dad? Like, he's not going to pull that because that's not the heart of who David was. So he knew he could trust him to say, I'll do whatever you, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. So verse 5, and David said to Jonathan, indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? David comes up with this plan draws to draw out the heart of Saul, right? And um, some people believe that David really went to Bethlehem to make it seem like David isn't lying here. <laughs> so, but David says he's going to hide in the field. So you be a Berean, figure out, you know, however you want to see that. But either way, okay, the goal of this deception is to see what's going on in the heart of Saul. That's what he wants to do. So there's a couple interesting things that I think we need to know about the new moon. And so the Hebrew calendar was lunar. And um, so it marked the beginning of a new month. So the new moon marks the beginning of the new month. At the first sign of the new moon, um, it was announced throughout the whole country. There were signal fires um, on mountaintops, blowing trumpets. This was a major deal. And if you look at Numbers 28, 
11 through 15, you can see that there are all these things were supposed to happen. This was instituted by God at the beginning of the month, okay? Um, there were a number of different sacrifices to uh, different offerings to the Lord. There was a grain offering, uh, regular burn offerings, a drink offering, and also a sin offering that comes, okay? So it marked like this consecration unto God for each new month. And so what ended up happening in Israel, this is big, is that um, the people continued to do the feasts, like we're going to see today. They're continuing to do the feasts and bring cattle to sacrifice, but their hearts refused to look at their sin in their life, okay, and deal with it. That was the kind of stuff. And so if you want to turn over to Isaiah 1 real quick, let's turn over there. God proclaimed through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 1, 1 verses 13 and 14. He says, um, bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. So this was a reset each month. Um, Get your hearts right you know, right here at the beginning of the month, recognize the provision from the Lord, and keep this in mind when we look to see what happens with Saul. So this new moon feast where sins are taken care of and we're dealing with it, dealing with our own hearts, we'll, we'll think about that, keep that in mind as we go to the, the feast, okay? But Saul apparently held this feast and brought his leadership team together right at this time. So I think we can all say Saul is a pretty transparent dude. Uh, he wears his emotions on his sleeve, and it doesn't take much to figure out where he stands on something. So David's plan is he's not going to show up, and uh, Jonathan's going to pass along this message to Saul. And if Saul's reaction is merely disappointment, and uh, David isn't, there's nothing wrong. David can come back. David's misjudged the situation, and he's fine to come on back home. If Saul gets angry, then they're going to know evil's planned against him. So it's pretty pretty simple process. Saul's going to make it clear pretty easily when they do it. But look at verse 8. David asked this of Jonathan because they weren't merely acquaintances. They were much more. He says they, brought, they were brought into a covenant of the Lord with each other. And um, David's referencing back to um, 1 Samuel 18, 3 and 4, where he says that Jonathan's soul was knit to David's. So that there's this love relationship, that they had, but they had been knit together. In chapter 18, it says they made a covenant with each other. And the word made is karath, which means to cut. So that's the same thing that was happening when, like, God met with Abraham and Abraham cut the animals in half and God walked between two. That was a covenant that was cut between them. So they're cutting this covenant in 18 together. As part of that covenant, you see when you look back at that passage that Jonathan takes off his armor, his sword, his belt, and um, bow, and he gives it over to David. And Jonathan was then identifying himself with David, you know, complete moving over, stripping himself of his identity, and finding himself in David. So cutting this covenant produced something in the lives of David and Jonathan. It was a binding relationship that took precedence over one's own blood relatives. So this was really tight, and this is why we end up having this problem with Saul. So it's a, sacred, it's a sacred thing that ended up happening. Like a marriage, you know, between a man and a woman, you're bonded together, something that shouldn't be broken. Their souls were knitted together. 
So David's reminding Jonathan of their bond, their commitment, and he's asking Jonathan to do something that could potentially be dangerous for Jonathan. So it was a covenant of the Lord or before the Lord in this passage. So we have these two men who know the importance of standing before God and and speaking before God and honoring the Lord in their actions and their agreements and all that's coming together. So what, what an amazing picture of what it means to surrender our lives to Christ. We, uh, we strip off the things that we held on to and lay them at the feet of Christ and put our trust in him, no longer living for ourselves. This is Jonathan's mindset with David. We can then say, as Jonathan did, whatever you desire me to do, I'll do it for you. That's the exact same thing that we, you know, what we do. So our love manifests itself in obedience to the Lord. And we were just talking about this at the men's study on Saturday morning. Here's my men's study plug. John 14 Jesus emphasized that love, to love him is to obey him. If you go back to John 14, you're going to see all that. And so David um, ultimately says here, if I've done something wrong, I would rather you take my life, Jonathan, than, than have me go before uh, Saul. He didn't want to go <clears throat> before Saul. So verse 9, Jonathan said, far be it from you. For if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? So Jonathan says, hey, if, if, I'm definitely going to tell you. If there's something wrong, I'm going to tell you. Our bond is based on trust and love and truth. And so he's going to tell him. Verse 10. Then David said to Jonathan, well, well, who will tell me? Or what if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Then Jonathan said to David, the Lord God of Israel is witness. When I sounded out my, when I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so, and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety, and the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. So David has some legitimate concerns here. He's like, well. You're going to go. You're going to do this thing. How am I going to find out this is going on? And um, who's going to give me this answer? This is, a, this is something that could get someone in serious trouble. If, if he's not happy, how am I going to get this information back? So Jonathan says he's going to be the one. He's going to be the one that's going to do this. Uh, if it's evil, whether it's good, whichever one, things, um, he's going to send it. So It's interesting that he ends the verse with, and the Lord will be with you as he has been with my father. See, Jonathan knows that David is the rightful heir, and he knows that the throne is going to be his. He's acknowledging it here, and this is all before the Lord, witnessed by the Lord. His life uh, is potentially going to be in peril, and so, but he's promising to get word back to him. So this is faithfulness of a friend. Um, Jesus spoke that greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for one's friend. And that's what Jonathan is getting ready to put his life in danger for the life of David. So verse 14, and you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth so this is a, um, a thing where Jonathan is looking at the other cultures. The other cultures at this time, if someone came to power, um, the, the new king would come in and kill all the rest of the family. So he'd kill Saul, kill Jonathan, kill Jonathan's kids. That's what he's coming here and saying. Jonathan's saying, um, you know, show kindness to me. Don't let that happen. He's asking not to do the customs of the cultures that are around us. So um, 
if he was going to do that, then all of them would be dead. But Jonathan is making sure that this is not going to bring vengeance on any of his family, none of that stuff as we move forward. And sadly, Jonathan, we find out, he never even gets to, to see this come to fruition because um, David ends up, but David ends up standing up and taking care of this piece of the business. He agrees to it. He keeps up his side of the bargain by taking care of Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, when we get to that chapter much later into the future. So we'll see that in future chapters. Verse 16. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And here's a new vow. He's vowing to him um, before the Lord with the house of David. He, I, I think this is just interesting wording, <clears throat> isn't it? Because David, he, he forces, he asks David to do this because he loves him. He loves him as his own soul. And um, we just, I always go back to what are the vows that we're doing in our lives? You know, when do we ever take a vow? We take a vow in marriage. You know, that goes, that's where I think of. And it's like we vow because we love the person that, that we're vowing to, you know. So, you know, we, we take these wedding vows. We, we, we love them. We're making a promise. We're making a commitment. And it's not a forced vow. Sometimes there's a forced vow that comes into, like in these times, you know, we're agreeing to something. But this was done out of love. So we vow because there's this commitment, these wedding vows, that, I'm trusting that my wife is going to stand up to her side of it because she loves me. She cares for me. And so I want you to know that all the relationship and in our culture, they, you know, they're talking about this is not a homosexual relationship or any inappropriate relationship. If you look into it, there's never a time that any of these words that are used for the love between David and Jonathan that is anything that even aligns with what would be used to know somebody in, in those manners. So this is not that. So when our culture nowadays wants to throw that into it, this is not any of that. This is a love. I think it's so confusing for us as men to say, how could two dudes love each other like this? Okay, so you have David who's killing bears, killing lions, killing giants, but he's also hugging and crying with another man and telling him he loves him, you know, and their souls are knitted together. That seems like it's bizarre in our culture, and yet I would think David would be the manliest of men where we go, well, I guess if you're killing bears, I guess we can hug and cry with each other, you know. So, <laughs> I mean, it's such an odd thing in our culture. But anyway, verse 18. So then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. Okay, I just have to say this. Um, the, um, David's an important person. He's going to be missed. I mean, this is, this is a natural, natural thing. He's going to be missed. Um, one of the commentators I read said that um, he just made an interesting point. You know, we should, be, we should be missed if we don't show up for things related to the sacred things that are going on in the church, right? We should be people that are missed. Now, why is that? I think, well, why is that? Why, why should we be missed? Well, what does the New Testament tell us? Hebrews 10 says, um, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. <coughs> so we show up out of love for God, obviously, um, but we also show up out of love for each other. I mean, that, that's one of the things that's going on here. Look, look at what 
Hebrews says, it says we're supposed to be people who are stirring up love and good works in the people in our church. That's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Exhorting one, each other, which is bringing encouragement. So we, we're called upon when we come together that we're stirring up love, we're encouraging people in good works, we're encouraging them when we come together. So if you, if you end up being missed, you know, are you somebody who's missed at the Bible study? Or are you missed during the prayer service? Or are you missed on Sunday morning or Wednesday? Now, if we look at these gatherings as, well, it's all about, it's all about me, right? I come to get information for myself. I'm, I'm here because I like the worship. Or, and it's make the whole thing about me. Then if you don't show up, it doesn't matter, right? Because you just, you missed out on it. And it, was, it was all about you. But if it's about something bigger, and I'm here to say it is, um, <clears throat> then it matters if you show up. It matters when we show up. And, and I'm pretty sure, I always think about my job, if I suddenly one day said, I'm just not going to show up, you know. People are going to go, well, your job didn't get done. You, like, you weren't there. And I don't want to make a complete connection to the church and my job, but we are saved for good works. We're saved to do these things, to stir up love in each other, encouraging one another. That's why we're coming together as, as brothers and sisters. God has made this, and it's amazing that he's given us good works to do, like he saved you for good works. So are you about those good works when we come together in the church? You know, um, Are you a person that everyone says, hey, when he, when he or she's not here, something's wrong, something's missing when that brother or sister doesn't come to the church? Because you're a person who's not only taking from the church when we come together, but you're, you're somebody who's giving back into the church, right? So you're conversing with people, you're praying with people, listening to them. So, you know, I'm not here to say we're, we're not all the same people. God has made us all completely different. Like we're, that's one of the beauties of what, but we have been saved to encourage and stir each other up to love. And, and so, so be a person who's missed, but I would also say, just show up. <laughs> so you don't feel missed, you know? So, all right, that's, that's but anyway, in, interesting things. So just think on those things. You know, when you come into the presence, when we come together, you know, are you here to give and, and be a member and love one another in that way that we're called to in the New Testament? So verse 19, he says, and when you have, and when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by the stone easel. So this is a strange reference. Uh, commentators don't, aren't completely sure as to what he's talking about here on the, when he says where he hid on the day of the deed. Um, uh, so they don't know, there might have been another time when he was running or hiding or something. So, but maybe it was a, a common place where David liked to hide. Uh, the word easel means departure. So basically, Jonathan wanted him to go uh, away for three days to see what happens, and this would be the location where they're going to have, you know, be able to get him the message. But we sang it on Sunday. We sang one of the songs, and I can't remember the song, but we were talking about, you know, that God is my hiding place. So Psalm, it just made me think of, you know, when you have difficulty, you know, what's your, where's your hiding place? Where do you go to hide? Um, Psalm 32.7, I love this. It says, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. That was written by David. So he's, you know, when David found himself in trouble, he turned to, turned to God as he's growing. Here we're seeing him, I think, at the beginning of this journey of him becoming what God wants him to be. But 
He started when he was in trouble, when he had rough times. He was writing songs. He was worshiping the Lord. And that's what a heart that wants to live by the Spirit does. <clears throat> so ten he tended to seek the Lord in trouble and write songs. That's a pretty good example for us. So verse 20, Then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target, and there I will send a lad saying, Go find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, Look, the arrows are on the side of you, get them and come, then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say thus to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you, go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. So this is Jonathan's way of he's going to shoot these arrows beyond the lad or in front of the lad. And depending on uh, if it's beyond, David needs to go. And if it's close, then David can come back. Pretty simple stuff, you know, but I think what they're, what they're trying to do is there's nothing odd about um, Jonathan going out to shoot arrows. So there, this is one way that the spies of Saul <coughs> wouldn't be able to, um, hold on, I'm going to get a drink. Um, he wouldn't be able to know exactly what's going on. So quiet. Okay. So, <laughs> so here, so they're, they're trying to figure out, um, the, the other neat thing here that he says, um, Look at Jonathan. Jonathan shows a belief in the sovereignty of God here, if we look at this passage, um, and that God is directing the steps of David. It wasn't Saul that's going to send David away, if that ends up happening. He says it was the Lord that was going to send David away. Um, God was training David <coughs> to become king, and this is all part of the process. And so when rough times come, and our way, and, and we have trouble that comes our way, do we believe that God is bringing those things into our path? You know, if bringing those things into our lives. There's a really um, amazing verse in Job 17, verse 9. Job says this, and I, you think about all the things that Job was dealing with, but Job says, Yet the righteous holds to his way, and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. So Job's in the middle of... Um, all that he's experiencing, you know, in the middle of suffering and tragedy and hurt and pain, yet he says that the righteous holds to his way and actually, and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. So in the midst of all those things, he's a person who grows stronger in the Lord. That's what ends up happening. And there's so much temptation um, to hold, to not hold on to our way, to not stay with the Lord when trouble comes, right? Um, and to start doubting the goodness of God when trouble comes our way. Um, or we doubt the greatness of God and the things that you know to be true about God. Those things can really get racked in our, in our minds. But the righteous holds to his way, and he has clean hands. There's so many temptations to sin amidst suffering. Um, lash out at people, whatever it might be. To charge God with some wrong, right, in the midst of that stuff or even to act in a manner that is not holy, those clean hands, not holy, not pure, not, um, not clean before others. Because the adversary wants to pull us away from God. That's what he wants to do. And Job 17.9 challenges us to hold fast to the, <clears throat> to the word of God. And that's what David tries to do in his life. If we believe that all things are just by chance, and we feel like we have to make everything happen, uh, the person who's walking in the Spirit is trusting that God is faithful, trusting that God 
loves them and is working in their lives, trusting that they're um, being conformed into the image of his son. Those are all the things that are going on in our lives when we're trusting in the Lord. Those people can look at situations and say, I guess this is where God has me right now. Now, what can I learn from it? How can I draw closer to him? How can I hold on to the way? Um, it's not fun. It may not uh, be what we want, but it, but it can fill you with peace knowing that, that God is gracious, he's loving, and he says he's never going to leave us or forsake us. What, what amazing things. And think about David's life. I mean, this is just a traumatic time for David. Like, I, I can't even, I can't think in my brain about what might have been going on in David's life, running for his life. He's done nothing wrong that, that we know of. He can't even think of a reason why Saul hates him. Um, but he's trusting the Lord. He's trying to walk obediently. And now he's going to have to leave everything he knows. And he's going to go on the run with no idea how it's going to end. And uh, all he knows is that God has made a promise to him that he's going to be the king. Wild, wild stuff. So <clears throat> look at um, verse 23. And as, as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, indeed the Lord be between you and me forever. Then David hid in the field. And when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king, um, now the king sat on his seat as at other times, and on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side, and David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, eh, something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he is unclean. So the feast time has arrived. We're now at the new moon. Saul's military leaders are showing up. They're coming together. And there's a sense that Saul knows this is a sacred time, right? He's already thinking about well, David might be unclean, so this is a sacred time. Uh, there were things that made you unclean, um, and, but they were normally taken care of in a day. You could be ready to go the next day. So um, Saul knows David's a God-fearing man, so he wouldn't come with right, without the right heart attitude. So he gives him the benefit of the day, doubt on day one. 20, verse 27, and it happened the next day the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to eat either yesterday or, yesterday or today? So Saul's already annoyed. And we can tell he's annoyed because he doesn't call him David. He doesn't call him his son-in-law, David. He calls him the son of Jesse and uh, stripping him of all recognition <laughs> of leadership that had been going on. So verse 28, so Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem, and he said, please let me go, for our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. And now, if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. Jonathan tells the lie they've devised. <laughs> Seems like a reasonable explanation to Jonathan. Uh, surely Saul is going to accept this story and react rationally. After all, it's a new moon. Presumably, you know, sin offerings have been made and hearts are right. You know, it's a sacred time. Verse 30. <clears throat> then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? This is like profanity he's throwing at him. Um, this is tearing down Jonathan. I know it looks like he's tearing down his mother, but it's not really. He's just saying something disgraceful to him. He's basically saying, you're an illegitimate son for what you've done here. Verse 31. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now, therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. You know, 
Saul's about building his kingdom. That's what he wants. He's living by the flesh. Jonathan, not concerned about that. He's not concerned about himself or power, none of those things. Jonathan, Jonathan cares and, about and loves David more than possessions. Love cares about what is right. And um, if you look at 1 Corinthians 13, love doesn't seek its own. And that's what Jonathan's doing here. He's not seeking his own. This is a godly love for David manifesting in Jonathan's life. So Saul, in his perverse mindset, still believes that he can somehow outmaneuver God in this. Like he, like, he still believes he has the power to pass this thing on to Jonathan. <coughs> and um, he's convinced that Jonathan knows where David is and he can go get him at any moment. So, verse 32, And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Jonathan, still confused, just like David, he's seen no evidence from the life of David that would uh, justify death. Then Saul, here we go, <clears throat> then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. Uh, instead of an answer, um, Saul goes back to his method of conflict resolution. Yeah, you know, kill the one who disagrees with you. <laughs> so he casts a, a spear at his own son to kill him. How amazing is that? I think this really speaks to when sin is not dealt with in your life, what it will take you to, right? He, here, here Saul is festering inside him, tearing him up, and the effects of sin nearly made him murder his own son, right? Uh, it's amazing he almost kills his son out of jealousy and a feeling of betrayal. Wild. So, um, Jonathan, this was the thing that made Jonathan be convinced. Yeah, I think uh, you think he's going for David. Uh, <clears throat> no amount of talking is going to convince Saul that uh, to change his mind. And you know, we see we see the works of the Spirit in a person's life. Um, you know, we know that patience, kindness, and self-control are all fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And so, um, you know, do you struggle with those things? Do you struggle with patience, kindness, self-control? Things we see here with Saul. Um, but if you're walking in the Spirit, your life is going to be on a trajectory where those things are being dealt with. You're growing in those areas. Maybe you were, maybe you were angry. Maybe you have issues with anger. But are you walking in the Spirit? Is that something that... Um, so one of the beauties of it is, as we pray, as we read the Word, and we ask for more of the Spirit, uh, you know, God promises He's going to give us the Spirit. He's going to guide us. The Lord promises that. And it's a joy that... I know Mike in his flesh can't do anything right. I can't pull anything together. I can't, I can't, I can't do it. So, but I can reach out to God and say, God, would you do this in my life? So help me in these areas. For some people, it might be like Saul. You know, I mean, you might fly off the hand. You might have a problem with that outburst of anger. Some people might not have outbursts at all, but they just keep it inside and they're angry and they're bitter inside and it eats at them. Um, but, you know, it doesn't explode out, but God knows our hearts. So we just, what do we do? You know, we ask God to speak to us. We pray, we repent. We say, God, reveal those things in my heart that are displeasing to you because I don't want to walk this way. I want to walk, I don't want to walk according to the flesh. I want to walk by the Spirit in my life. So God says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. What an amazing thing. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's amazingly hopeful promise. It's a promise of God to us who need to find rest for our souls. So verse 34, so Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. 
Jonathan's angry, um, but look at his heart of love. He wasn't fearful of his father, you know, hey, I'm going to run. He was just grieved for David. He was grieved because he knew uh, this was going to affect David. This is David's life that's going to be affected. And it was David who was going to be on the run. Once again, love doesn't seek its own. Verse 35. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David. And a little lad was with him. Then he said to his lad, Now run, find the arrows which I shoot. And as the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the lad had come to the place where the arrow was with which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? So here's a signal to David. Situation is as bad as David believed. 38, And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. So Jonathan, Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to the master, to his master. But the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go, carry them to the city. As soon as the lad had gone, <clears throat> David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. Um, they, you know, you think about this moment in time. They don't know if they're going to see each other again. Um, they will actually see each other one more time after this. It's this amazing friendship that has been torn apart because of jealousy. And the effects of sin tend to have these tentacles that reach out and, and reach all kinds of people, destroy lives. David wept more because he was losing more. This was, this was him about to be on the run for his life with no end in sight. So verse 42, then Jonathan said to David, go in peace since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord saying, may the Lord be, with, be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. So there's several things that I think just come to light in this chapter. Um, first, what an amazing demonstration of what love for others looks like, you know, uh, between Jonathan and David. Just gives us a glimpse into what uh, commitment and friendship and love for each other looks like. But when we look at, when we look to Christ, right, uh, we see the ultimate example of love. Him, him laying down his life for people who hated him. Um, he didn't seek his own, but he only did the will of the Father so that you and I could have eternal life. Truly amazing. Um, you know, if you think about the, what we're commanded to do, we're supposed to love God and love others uh, as ourselves. And so I, many times I was telling Tim earlier that, you know, I, I look at this relationship between Jonathan and David and I say, wow, that's, that's like that's unattainable. But they were just people like us, right? And, and the scripture is calling us to love people that way. That's, that's what we're supposed to be called, to love one another. Love somebody as I love myself? That's, that's what they were doing. That's what Jonathan was doing for David, and that's what David was doing for Jonathan. So I think that's the norm. <laughs> and, you know, are we, are, we living, are we living to what God has called us to do as far as loving one another? And then the second thing that, you know, how do we handle adversity? How do we handle the things that come against us? Um, God wants us to run to him, to find rest in him, to, to trust him, and not allow circumstances in our lives to deter us, to move us in directions that we say, um, you know, think differently about who God is and what he's trying to do. So let him be our hiding place and rest today in the midst of trouble. I think that's what God wants for us. So our future is uncertain, but I can tell you what, we can trust the Lord because he's always faithful. He said to always be faithful. So Hey, let's pray together. So, Lord, I just thank you so much for your word and um, 
I thank you, God, that you continue to reveal um, your truth to us. Um, Lord, that you just continue to work on our hearts and um, just helping us to rely upon you to to know how to love people, to know how to seek your face, and um, to just find rest in you, whether we're in trials and tribulations and whether we're having a good time, Lord, we just pray that uh, we always find our rest in you and our strength in you, God, for each new day. And so I just I just pray for all of us, Lord, as we head out and we go out into this world, Lord, um, that you just give us strength to just be obedient to you, to, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as ourselves, Lord, as we go out. And just thank you, God, for what you're going to do in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.